So, Jay, I've been reading a bunch of Silver Age X-Men. Oh man, that is some really fun stuff, Miles. Also a lot of terrible stuff, but fun. I always forget that the X-Men used to be BFFs with the FBI. Sure, they had their own personal liaison and everything. Was that the guy who made them break up the team after Xavier faked his death the first time? Yep, that's the one. Agent Fred Duncan. What happened to him, anyway? Well, he quit and subsequently resolved to expose the government's anti-mutant agenda. As a whistleblower? As a novelist. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 231 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a significantly more uplifting, or at least less depressing, episode. It's kind of all over the map on that front. I suppose that's true, but... The cold open was not lying. I did just read through all of Silver Age X-Men in like a two-week period, and I gotta say, having mainlined it that way with all of the X-Men context that I have gained in the last almost five years of the podcast, it was a lot more fun than I thought it would be. Oh, it is terrific fun. It's really silly, and it's not always good, but it's definitely a lot of fun. And I will say, the way that Roy Thomas writes The Beast makes me very, very happy. Like, I think it's some of my favorite Beast writing, actually. And Iceman, for that matter. I like the idea of Beast writing be a, being a thing, kind of like ghost writing. Oh yeah, I can do that. So ghost writing, uh, based on the television show of this of the same name, which I'm assuming is the only place that term has ever been used, involves having a ghost that can only communicate in writing. So maybe that's like... Um, our uh, cat Bella, she could communicate in squawks, yes, but also if she could hold a pen with her paws, then she could write and just tell us, give me food, give me pets. You're, you're assuming that she would be able to write words and not just do the writing equivalent of squawking. Oh, um, yeah, maybe she would just write a whole bunch. It seems likely. So today we are going to be talking about some annuals, specifically three of the five X annuals that came out in 1993. But for the first time in a long time, we're not going to have a great big crossover story, a chapter of which each annual was. For the first time, we're going to have some standalone stories. We will, however, have a unifying motif, and that is that each annual introduced one or two new characters to the Marvel Universe. That was line-wide at Marvel. There were, I believe, 27 1993 Marvel annuals. Each of them had the first appearance of a new character. And even better, had a trading card for that new character, polybagged with the issue. Now, I want to get this out of the way first off. We're not talking about Adam X yet. Adam X is going to be in the second 1993 annual episode we do in a little bit. Actually, possibly in a while, because that takes place after Fatal Attractions. We'll get to him, don't worry. Today we have a few others who we'll tell you about shortly. And if the tone in which Miles said a few others isn't a tip-off, I think it's worth noting that most of those characters introduced in the 93 annuals have not had a ton of staying power. 
there's actually a really good article that um, Austin of The Real Gentleman of Leisure found, and and I read, and we'll link to that in the As Mentioned, talking about what happened with these annuals. Apparently, they were all very rushed. If Marvel could get the regular writer or artist of a book to do the annual, sure, they would. But a lot of the time, they couldn't. And what we're seeing here, with at least some of the stories we're covering, is people who were not regulars. And sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes... Well, sometimes it's the Excalibur annual A-plot, and I'm very excited to talk about that. But this was a big deal. Back in the early to mid-90s, the speculator market was fucking crazy. Like, first appearances of characters, first issues of series, special covers, all of that stuff sold like gangbusters. I mean, there's a reason that X-Men number one sold as many copies as it did, and it wasn't just because it was a fun story. Like, people like me were buying multiple copies. They were pretty sure they were going to be able to retire on them. I, um, have yet to retire. Yeah, you've been getting those extra copies in your care packages for the last several years, patrons, because everyone did this. And so so you had ridiculous gimmicks and the publishers leaned hard into this stuff. You know, I, I don't remember how many variant covers X-Men number one had, but it was a lot. In Fatal Attractions, we're going to see these holographic cards embedded in the covers. They looked like trading cards. They looked like you could peel them off. You couldn't. Yeah, Matt and I both tried the same thing on uh, at least one of our Fatal Attractions issues, which was to peel off the hologram because it looked like a trading card. Yeah, um, and it turned out, no, it was it was pretty well stuck. That would just kind of wreck the cover. Um, it, it sounds like uh, I was able to repair the damage a little better than Matt was from the conversations that we've had, but goddammit, Marvel, you owe us comics uh, many years later. What do you say? I mean, you can pick up those issues in a lot of dollar bins, Miles. It's the principle of the matter, damn it. Anyway, the point is Marvel was leaning hard into the collector boom and the speculator market, and one of the ways they did that was the 93 annuals, each of which was the first appearance of a major character. And even if most of these guys didn't catch on, if one or two of them did and you had 10 copies of that coveted first appearance, and somehow everyone else who'd bought 30 copies of that first appearance lost theirs in a mysterious fire that you definitely didn't know anything about, you were set. Right. And it wasn't just Marvel that was doing it. DC did an event called Bloodlines that was basically the same thing, except there was a continuing story that ran through all of the first appearances. So interesting there. It's kind of like that time that DC did Blackest Night and Marvel did Necrotia at the same time. That was weird. Wait, was Bloodlines what Azrael came out of? Uh, I have no idea. I mean, he seems pretty early 90s, so let's go ahead and assume yes. I don't actually know either. I just vaguely remember both terms and think that maybe I heard them in connection. I'm sorry, my, my DC history is is really, really just animated, honestly. Animated in Starman. Yeah, basically the same. But we are not talking about the DC universe now, we're talking about Marvel. So I vote we start with the first of these annuals to come out, that being X-Factor annual number eight, Charon. Let's do it. This one is written by Peter David, so technically this is the final Peter David X-Factor story, even though he had already departed the book by this point. I love that that means his last X-Factor story was the final appearance of the Chalkers. Yeah, yeah, I kind of love that too. It's penciled by Terry Shoemaker. Hey, Terry Shoemaker, nice. Inked by Mark McKenna and colored by Joe Rosas. And we open in 1966 with a young man named Charlie Ronalds, who's getting out of seeing the Adam West Batman movie with his folks, who are promptly guns down by a mutant mugger in an alley. The mugger is clearly random in a trench coat. But if this origin story sounds a little familiar, yeah, it's just straight up Batman's origin story. 
I, I also want to note that much like Mrs. Wayne, Mrs. Ronalds wore a pearl necklace that was not correctly assembled. You not between the pearls. Like everyone who gets decent pearl necklaces should know this. Uh, it was a, another time, maybe back in the uh, 40s slash 60s, people did things differently. No, no, this is this is something that has bugged me for years and years and years about that Batman scene. <laughs> well, maybe that was why Joe Chill and Random respectively did what they did. They were just pissed off by that. OK, so this is a flashback scene, right? Set in 1966. Isn't Random a kid in the present? Yeah, he's officially a kid who is shapeshifted to look like an adult, so this actually doesn't make any sense. But of all the things we have overlooked in X-Men continuity that didn't make sense, I feel like this is a minor one. You know, I actually thought of a no prize for it. Oh, yeah? X-Men time travel all the time. That's a pretty weird reason to time travel, unless you're really pissed off about Pearl Necklace assembly. No, maybe he, like, went back in history, went back in time, got stuck in the past, had to take a job, or, or you know, was, was, was mugging people to make a living. It's, it's a possibility. Uh, I think we need an annual exploring specifically that. But in this annual, we find that after his parents' untimely murder in Marvel Crime Alley, Charlie becomes a maladjusted youth whose only friend is Guido Caracella, a very young, strong guy. Well, he wasn't strong yet. But when he was... In that event that where his mutant power is first manifested, he inadvertently lashed out and seriously injured Charlie. Uh, Charlie, to be fair, was trying to brain Guido with a rock at the time because Charlie was super anti-mutant after his parents died. So I'm not going to say he was an innocent here. Well, he was super scared of mutants and seeing Guido's powers suddenly manifest and specifically suddenly cause his body to abruptly change gave teenage Charlie flashbacks to the death of his parents and seeing random's morphy gun arm yeah so he went on to be super messed up and murder neighborhood cats and have life bites carved into his bed's headboard basically he grew into everything that scare movies and comics about dungeons and dragons from the late 80s and early 90s warned you would happen if you played dungeons and dragons exactly in the present day, though, X-Factor isn't worrying about this at all. They're training in their version of the Danger Room, which, due to governmental budget cuts, is just Val Cooper in a bunker firing a gun at all of them, which is a gag I really, really enjoy. She's a very hands-on manager. She is. I love Val Cooper. I love her so much. I mean, I know she's technically possessed at this point or whatever. We'll get to that later. But I love her so much. I don't know if I love her. Well, she is 50% loved by this podcast. Man, this issue, ah, it's 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 a it's an appropriate end to Peter David's run because it's it's got a kind of precise mix of stuff that's pretty fun and stuff that's really actively upsetting and massively problematic. Like it gets aggressively anti-sex worker later on. Yeah, we'll get to that. That part's fucked up. But in the meantime, Guido and Polaris are on the Donahue show talking about being mutants and uh, uh, actually, uh, 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 don't you mean GCs? Oh, yes, GCs. We'll get to that later, too. Genetically challenged, it's a politically correct term that has been introduced early in the series. That Guido made up as a joke, but which then caught on. Exactly. Now, as Guido and Lorna are having their interview talking about how no, being a mutant uh, isn't like a purely negative disability. There are some cool things about it, and also maybe you shouldn't talk about disabilities that way. What the hell? Yeah, Guido actually brings up a really salient point about disability and disability politics, which is really cool and one of those places that I wish the X-Men went more, and I was really impressed that it happened here. 
Yes. Somebody who may or may not be impressed, though, is another watcher of this interview, that being Charlie Ronalds. He's older, he's got a ponytail and a goatee, and he is so upset with Guido being on screen that he blows up his television. Using the eldritch powers that he's gotten from playing Dungeons and Dragons. You know, they don't they don't say how he got them. Nothing is going to convince me otherwise. Fair, but the narration here is delicious. And then he laughs. If you imagine the pure joy of a child, but twisted and distorted like a shredded butterfly, then you can conjure the sound of it for yourself. Better, though, if you don't. I'm going to miss Peter David's writing. So Charlie goes up on the roof now that he doesn't have a television and needs something else to do, and draws a flaming pentagram and summons a demon, like you do. Keep your cable on, kids. Otherwise, this might happen to you, too. The cord-cutting thing that's going on these days? Oh man, we're gonna have so many more demons. So this demon is specifically one named Clute, who we will find out in a Hulk issue is actually Satanish. Not Satan, just Satan-ish. I was gonna say that's a really silly name about Clute, but honestly, it really applies to either. It's true. I mean, they can't all be Mephisto. Mephisto sounds awesome. Yeah, but he's kind of a dork. True, true. So, Clute says, okay, Charlie, I will totally empower you to kill X-Factor, because you want to do that. Because, as it turns out, me and the other Lords of Hell, we're having kind of a, a contest, so we're all collecting these powerful souls so we can win this contest, which is actually a storyline Peter David will basically come back to with some variations when he does the Hell on Earth War, like, decades later. I would be so much more impressed with Contest of Champions if that were the premise. That would be... Pretty awesome, actually. Now, during this scene, as Charlie Ronalds is getting turned into a weird zombie-looking wizard and going by Charon because he's going to ferry X-Factor souls to hell. Also, his name is Charlie Ronalds, so I guess that's okay. No, no, no. See, I was, I, I was like, okay, that's a stupid name, but whatever. And it's not entirely appropriate, but whatever, until you brought up the fact that it's also the first three letters of his first and last name, at which point I decided that he can go to hell. Womp womp, cause he does. Oh yeah, no, I just hate him. Anyway, we also find out here that when Clute slash Satanish uses the term GCs for mutants, that apparently demons invented political correctness, which, goddammit, Peter David. As a brief recap, and because we sometimes explain things other than X-Men, I would like to take this opportunity to point out that the phrase political correctness was itself invented to make fun of people who tried not to be jerks. Yeah, not being a jerk. What a what a dorky premise, huh? God forbid you call a marginalized marginalized community by the name that it itself chooses rather than the one that was originally used as a derogatory term by other people. Alas. Well, let's not get too annoyed by this part. Let's instead see what X-Factor's up to. They're hanging out playing cards, and Wolfsbane is actually reading a book called Howlin' Mad, which is a novel that Peter David, in the real world, wrote about a wolf who's bitten by a werewolf and then turns into a human, which is actually a pretty great premise. Yeah, that's 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 actually pretty entertaining. I mean, I don't know if the novel is. I haven't actually read it, but it's a good premise. Suddenly, Charon attacks, and he doesn't attack alone. He is accompanied by three villains who have appeared previously in the pages of X-Factor. Miles, you want to do the honors? That's right. Here we have Professor Vic Chalker, Rick Chalker, also known as Number One Fan, and Dick Chalker, also known as Carnivore, who all died in, respectively, X-Factor number 77, 83, and 89. Yes, the 
villains so ineffective that they died before they even met the team they were trying to kill are back in pog form. I mean, undead form. That's because their hatred for X-Factor was central in each of the Chalker's minds when he died. And so they were revived and, and given to Charon as the greatest enemies of X-Factor because that was how, how deeply their hatred roiled. And presumably, Clute was assuming that they'd been killed by X-Factor and that's why they'd been thinking about it so intensely when they died. But no, no, they had just been killed by their own incompetence and a bus. Strong Guy is, is likewise somewhat bemused by, by their appearance. That figures. Only we could have a bunch of greatest enemies that we never heard of. And true to form, they pretty much manage to take themselves out. Number one fan tries to catch a, a falling Vic and accidentally shreds him with his fan blade hands. Vic lasers number one fan as revenge and Carnivore bites multiple man who manages to create a dupe inside Carnivore, which explodes out and it's really gross. It is really gross, but it also does entertain me. Like, okay, I know these are probably villains that have overstayed their welcome at this point, but I do love that their big revenge against this team that doesn't even know they exist, yeah, they get taken out, like, just as ignominiously as the first time that they died. Strong Guy eventually recognizes Charlie, even though Charlie now looks like he's been in the fryer for too long and is wearing a bathrobe. And Charlie says, after everything that happened, he is going to kill X-Factor. Unfortunately, this is against the terms of his agreement with Clute, so Clute grabs Charlie and sends him to hell, where he can hang out with his parents, who are apparently there because his mother was a prostitute and his father was her business manager. And, um, that's just kind of out of nowhere. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very much Peter David humor, like that sort of, like, dark, twisted humor, but... But it's also kind of mean-spirited. And this is a story that I was pretty entertained by, and then that happened, and then I was sad. Yeah, I thought they were going to turn out to be Nazis or something, because Clute is going on about how you thought, you know, don't you remember how they were estranged from the rest of your family and no one wanted to take you in when they died? Well, here's why. And I figured they were going to just be really horrible people. But no, they weren't. They totally weren't. This is just the just sort of a random page of being really fucking mean about sex work. Boo. But it's not the last thing that happens. The last thing that happens is that Strong Guy accidentally stabs Polaris in the butt with Charon's sword cane. So there you go. That's your last page of Peter David X Factor for like 20 years. That was a thing. Well, I guess we can all move on with our lives now. Kind of, maybe. We can move on to the backup stories from that annual, which we'll just briefly cover. We have a story called What Have You Got to Hide, written by Skip Dietz, penciled by Aldrin Awe, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Carlos Lopez, which is basically just the current version of mysteriously evil Val Cooper going through the personal history files of X-Factor. And we've basically covered all the stuff that's in here, so there's no need to recap. But it is kind of cool seeing a 90s house-style take, because this is very much like a house-style that Aldrin Awe draws, of old Silver Age stories, like seeing them kind of updated to 90s style, it's just fun. Even if everybody who recaps the Silver Age does always forget that the X-Men had two different variants of the blue and yellow costume, and goddammit, they just always draw the second one, even if they should have been wearing the first one at that point. He did remember Angel's suspenders costume, though, which is very important. Oh, it's seriously one of the worst superhero costumes ever. It's so bad. Oh, I kind of love it. I mean, it's not good, but it's great. You know... You're right. Not good, but great is a perfect way of describing that. We also have a story called Crawlin' from the Wreckage, written once again by Skip Dietz, with pencils by Chris Batista, inks by Jeff Albrecht, and colored by, colors by Joe Rosas. Man, Strong Guy just cannot get a break this annual. No, he can't. This is actually a really good, if very short, story. 
Guido is on his own investigating a subway crash because, you know, he's a government superhero, so he investigates all sorts of things. And when he gets down there, everybody's dead, and Guido is pretty messed up about this. He talks about, to himself, how he wishes it had been a supervillain or something instead of just a drunk train operator. This is pointless. There's no grand design to it. There's no meaning. It's just random, unfortunate bullshit. There's no one he can fight, and there's nothing he can do. But he doesn't He doesn't give up on trying to help, and he looks and looks and looks, and he finally manages to, to find the one survivor of this terrible crash who is small and adorable and um, definitely a, a tiny dog. Um, and he is frustrated, but glad he at least gets to save one thing. All these people are dead, and the one thing that survives is a stupid dog. That makes sense. You don't look too shaken up, either. You don't know what happened here, do you? Well, just keep it that way, kid, and don't look back. Just don't look back. Don't look. Do you think the dog is maybe a supervillain who actually caused the crash? Could totally be a scroll. That would make the story a little less poignant, but could totally be a scroll. But a tiny, adorable scroll who licks Guido's nose. Oh, well, everybody up top is furious with Guido that he'd bring a dog back, but no people, that he didn't save anyone. I mean, he's a superhero after all, that when he gets upset and frustrated with their criticism, he makes light of the situation, that he's a mutant. That's all some people need to be angry. Yeah, um, and he is, he is miserable. He sulks off, hating himself for joking and getting angry, and finally just sort of sits down on a stoop with the dog who licks his face and looks concerned in in the way of small doggos. It's a nice little character study. I mean, Guido has so much bluster that actually getting a chance to get inside his head and see that he's a more well-realized character, it's nice to see. And I don't know, to me, it really makes this annual a lot better than it otherwise would be. It's definitely the the bright point. In a bleak sort of way, but yeah, it's it's definitely the standout story in this in this issue. Well, let's move on from there to the second annual we'll be covering. That is Uncanny X-Men Annual number 17, The Gift Goodbye. This is written, or the main story is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Jason Pearson, inked by Mark Farmer, and colored by Kevin Tinsley and Erica Moran. Uh, Jason Pearson is terrific, and he is he is a guy who is still drawing comics today, and who's, who's I think, gotten a lot of visibility and critical acclaim um, across the board, specifically, I think, for, for a Wolverine run, but he's he's pretty well known in general at this point. Yeah, the uh, inks and colors also help a great deal. It's very sharply inked with these broad swaths of color. And it's uh, it does a good job of showing both this star-studded fantasy world that we'll be looking at and also this emaciated, grizzled, dying villain. The style actually reminds me a little bit of almost an even mix of the two big Starman artists, Tony Harris and Peter Staberg. Yeah, I can see that a little bit. So... Our new guy this issue is the executioner, Carl Denty. And Carl Denty was Fred Duncan's partner at the FBI. And he is allegedly avenging Duncan. He inherited Duncan's um, files when Duncan will eventually learn quit, but here it's implied died. I love the idea that he's just avenging um, Duncan quitting. He swears vengeance eternally on the concept of retirement. Well, on on Duncan having having been driven out effectively because of his his protest of of the increasingly anti mutant sentiments in the department and in the government, but um so so in addition to to Duncan's files, Carl has also inherited 
a fuck ton of tangentially mutant related, mostly actually alien gear from Duncan's collection, um, which is, is mostly stuff from the silver and bronze age that that came up in the X-Men's adventures includes, among other things, the last and only relic of the Xanox. Remember those guys? Yeah, from the second to last issue of the Silver Age run. There's also some stuff from Factor 3, some stuff from the Shi'ar, who I think were only around at that point if you go by Grand's design canon, but whatever. But I love this concept. I love that it's just all of the Silver Age crap crammed into one character who then uses it to be some avenging vigilante, even if he is a jerk. And Denti's thing, aside from looking like someone who put together a knight costume out of stuff that he found in his parents' closet is killing mutants, but only mutants who've killed. And we meet Denti when he shows up in the town of San Miguel, saves a young woman from a drunk and violent tower, that's the old X-Factor villain, berates the woman he's just saved for thanking him, and then promises the villagers that he'll never forsake humanity the way humanity forsook him. He's terrible already. I think he just really is aware that this is his first appearance, and he's got to get as strong a first impression as possible. You never make a first impression twice. I mean, you do if you're Sienna Blaze. Yeah, well, we'll get to that. But I gotta say, killing Tower to show that you're a badass when you first appear, I'm way more okay with that than killing, oh, I don't know, say, the Hellions. Looking at you, fucking Trevor. Meanwhile, on Muir Island, um, and I'm going to open this with the twist, a dying mastermind has asked to talk to Jean Grey, and the gold team came out to Muir Island with Jean just in case, because this is a big villain, and three members of that team, Jean, Iceman, and Bishop, have been sucked into an overlapping illusion. What have we got for our participants today, Jason? Well, Jean Grey and Scott Summers are married. They have Rachel Summers and Nathan Dayspring, Ascani Sun, etc. as kids, like kid-aged kids. And apparently they're all leading a quiet, normal, wonderful life. Bishop is back with the XSE alongside his sister Shard. Hey, it's Shard's first actual on-page appearance. We heard her mentioned before and made fun of slash praised her name. And now she's on page and she looks really cool. What kind of parents name their children Lucas and Shard? I mean, the, the bishops, apparently. I mean, I guess also the Snickets, who have children named Jacques, Lemony, and Kit. But still. Iceman, meanwhile, is leading the both beloved and heavily licensed X-Men as the even more beloved Ice Master. I love the conversation that the X-Men have about Ice Master here, starting with Havoc. None of our other leaders ever held a candle to you, Bobby. Professor Xavier agrees. Havoc is right. You should have led the X-Men from day one. To which Wolverine chimes in. Charles is right about Havoc being right. We'd be nowhere without your good looks, charisma, and financial savvy. And even Lil Nathan is in awe. I just wanted to say, Mr. Icemaster, sir, that you've been an inspiration to me. Just like you, I'm going to forsake my college career, blame my parents for everything bad in my life, and refuse to ever take anything serious or accept responsibility for my actions. Ever. Ouch. Also, little Nathan is very excited to find an Icemaster action figure in the mall that they're in. And sure enough, in real life, the Iceman action figure back in the 90s was, like, impossible to find. So I would be excited, too. Oh, man. And, um... Speaking of the 90s, when Bishop objects to the X-Men's general style in this uh, dream world, Havoc has some general commentary on the whole comics line as it is. You're still thinking substance over style, B. The X-Men of the 90s are about giving the people what they want. 
Alas, this stream does not end up being about giving the characters what they want because the dream, as almost all paradise, everything is great dreams tend to do, falls apart. Right. Fitzroy shows up to murder Shard. The X-Men turn on Iceman, crucify him, and tell him he's useless. And the Phoenix Force explodes out of Scott and Jean's TV. And then their kids come downstairs after their bedtimes as we adorable versions of Hound, Rachel, and Cable to tell off their parents. We were talking, Nate and I, about how the two of you have been total zips on the parental front. You couldn't care less if I live in England or if I'm out in space. And me... First time I get sick, you ground me in the future. They attack, and Jean realizes almost immediately that they're illusions, who are preying on her own frustration with feeling guilty for not being more of a parent to two kids who aren't hers and just kind of got dropped on her. And not only are they illusions, but so is everything else in this world. Eventually, the, the three X-Men who are real, who are stuck there, work out what's going on. They are stuck in Mastermind's illusions, but it turns out it's not actually a trap. He's lost control of his powers because of the legacy virus. Wait a minute. Mastermind never had any kind of, like, telepathy like this. He could just generate illusions. He was only able to pull Jean Grey, or as it turned out, Phoenix, into a mental illusion world because of a little machine that Emma Frost made for him to use. Maybe he, maybe he swallowed it. Maybe he still got it in his belly. Well, or maybe this is another part of what the legacy virus did to his powers. Maybe this is what they would be if you turned them up that much further. I just think it's funnier if the dying man ate a robot box. It could be both. Now, the reason that he's done this, and the reason he wanted to talk to Gene, is that his relationship with Gene during the Dark Phoenix saga, which he acknowledges explicitly as having been coercive and not real, which is, is yeah, good, was still the closest he's ever come to being loved, and he wanted to apologize and to give her something good, basically, in his words, a glimpse of a happier world. Obviously, this did not work out as planned. And now, with Mastermind dying, they're all stuck in his head. Now, Jean manages to boot out Bishop and Iceman and accepts Jason's apology. She doesn't mention the part where that wasn't actually her, that was Phoenix, which I, I guess is nice. And even though Jean is trying to stay in Mastermind's mind to be with him in his last moments, though it would mean her death, he pushes her out selflessly and dies. And I guess that's cool, but okay, after everything Mastermind did to Jean, like, he really, really fucked with her. Okay, fucked with Phoenix, but still. I mean, he kind of, like, mind-raped her a lot, and I don't think I'm ready to forgive him, as nice as he's willing to be when he dies. Something I really appreciate is that this story doesn't actually ask for that. It doesn't try to present this as his redemption or as something that takes away from any of the bad shit that he does, just as him wanting to do a decent thing before he dies. And that's something that's even addressed directly in, in the dialogue that, that Iceman and Bishop comment on. And Iceman basically says something along the lines of, you know, damn it, you, you think someone's just one thing and it turns out that they're actually a whole person. Oh, yeah, and I love Bishop's response to that. Which, yeah, which is basically everyone is. We're all whole other people, Robert. It's always just a matter of perspective. Every villain is the hero of their own story. And I appreciate that. I'm just very mad at Mastermind. And Jean Grey, compassionate, yes. I wouldn't necessarily call her forgiving. Well, does she forgive him? I don't think she does. I think she accepts his apology, but and she she tries to be there for him as he's dying because he's a sentient being who's dying in pain. But again... There's, there are no excuses. There's no sense that this cancels anything out or makes up for anything or erases anything. 
And again, that's an aspect of this story in particular that I, I really appreciate and kind of want to want to keep emphasizing because it's yeah, it's it's a good way to handle that. It's a good way to handle making a villain more complex and more human without necessarily needing it to be about redemption or forgiveness. You know, honestly, the more you talk about it, the more I'm inclined to agree with you, which I feel better about because I don't like um, hating people, even if they're fictional characters. So I like that, yeah, that you're pointing out that this is a gray situation, that, you know, it's not a zero-sum game. Well, it's not a gray situation. It's him trying to do a nice thing, having done a lot of really, 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 really horrible things. You're right that it's not a zero-sum game, but I think it's still okay to hate him. I think that he's someone who did an overwhelmingly large amount of harm in his life and who tried to do one nice thing. And again, nothing cancels in either direction. There's, there's, it, it kind of leaves it leaves the reader to land wherever they want to land. And the characters don't really come out with solid conclusions here either, which is kind of nice. But meanwhile, while they're busy in Mastermind's head, a very silly looking man attacks Muir Island. And that is once again the executioner who has decided that his his mission of killing mutants who have killed should extend to ones who are literally on the brink of death by natural causes. Well, that's why it's so important that he get to him first, because otherwise he might die horribly painfully in a different way. And, you know, the executioner won't get his revenge for whatever happened to Fred Duncan, I guess. Maybe Mastermind rejected one of his manuscripts? I don't know. That's probably it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fred Duncan actually was just a, really excited to get a response at all. He put the rejection letter up on his fridge. But Carl is a very loyal friend, loyal to a fault, it turns out. So it was time to pick up the Shi'ar power lance and the Xenox whatever and the Factor 3 wristbands and matching headband set and go after Mastermind. Wait, I bet he used Pyro's publishing connections to prevent the publication of Duncan's book. Oh, yeah, that must be what happened. Pyro's a romance novelist. Hmm, worried about competition. You think it's a romance novel exposing the government's anti-mutant agenda? God, I hope so! I would read the hell out of that! FBI agent um, Red Dunstan and his star-crossed romance with, um... Um, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of which, which X-Men character he's totally got to think for. It's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be, um, Barl's Mavier and, and, and how, who, who thinks that, that, um, that Red is totally the coolest, sexiest, smartest, most badass FBI agent ever. Oh no, no, Jay, we're not at the self-insert fanfiction part of the episode yet. That's the Excalibur issue. Fine, fine. Anyway. Uh, Carl the Executioner fights everyone and talks a lot and talks to himself and calls himself Carl when he talks to himself, which is hilarious when it's coming from a guy in full, like, clued-together armor. I don't know why, but but just, ah, uh, Carl the Executioner. But the X-Men who aren't in the dream world hold him off, and eventually he teleports away, leaving a bemused Storm and Archangel and a very heavily injured Colossus. That's right, this injury is why Colossus can't transform back into his flesh form. That brings us to the backup story. This is Of Kings and Queens and Promises, written by Scott Lobdell, with pencils by Tom Grummet, inks by Al Milgram, and colors by Glynis Oliver. So this is a story that officially introduces villain Sienna Blaze, who we'll see more of in X-Men Unlimited number one. But, uh, Jay, I feel like you could probably summarize this pretty quickly. What do you say? 
Well, first of all, it's not her first appearance. We've already seen her in Strife's burn book. But here are the important details it establishes about Sienna Blaze. First, she has a crayon name. God, she totally does. Or an eyeshadow name. I guess you could just use crayons and eyeshadows uh, interchangeably, but it might not work out. You can actually make really awesome, super-saturated lipstick out of crayons. Or out of Sienna Blaze. Sienna Blaze crayons. Okay, so anyway. Second, she is a mutant who can explode stuff, but isn't super experienced with her powers. Third, sometime in the dark future of Earth-811, she will be taken to a concentration camp via a large train. Sometime in that or another timeline, she will tell Fitzroy what she was up to in summer 1993, which was apparently running from the cops with some dude she talked into doing some crimes with her. And finally, and most importantly, we learn what is probably going to be the defining characteristic of Sienna Blaze's personality. Namely, when a stranger appears out of nowhere and kills the guy she's traveling with and asks if she wants to join a murder club, she says yes. And that's how Sienna Blaze joined the Upstarts. And who am I to argue? I do love that it's just such a straightforward origin, like, hey, everything's going to be terrible in the future. You want to kill everybody? Yeah? Great. It's not even everything's going to be terrible in the future. It's just, hey, want to join a murder club? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Good old Sienna. Well, like I said, we'll see more of her later in a much better story. But I want to tell you, gentle listeners, about Excalibur Annual number one. This is really just what we've been building up to the entire time. I'm so excited. Okay, now we've covered a number of Excalibur special editions. Like Wolverine, Excalibur didn't have annuals for a long time. Instead, it had these prestige format one-shots. Now we're going to just full-on annuals to celebrate the 1993 first appearance extravaganza. Right, so this is Excalibur's first ever annual, probably making it doubly collectible, extra super collectible. You might be able to get a whole, like, buck fifty for this one. I mean, only if it's still polybagged with the trading card. But the first story, Black Magic, is written by Evan Skolnick, penciled by Chris Marinan and Audwin Newman, inked by Mark McKenna, Danny Bolinati, and Keith Williams, and colored by Dana Morshead and Mike Thomas. What it should say after that, after all of those credits, is with apologies to R.A. Salvatore. We open with Cerise dreaming of being a rad sorceress fighting a metal-winged dark elf in a big goblin war, and then Cerise dies! Wait, when you say Dark Elf, are you talking about the Malekith-style Dark Elves? I am talking straight up about D&D Forgotten Realms Dark Elves. This guy looks like if Driss Doerden and Archangel had a baby. I'm sure there's fanfiction about that somewhere. And if there wasn't before, there is now that you've mentioned it. Retroactively, because quantum fetish theory. Yay? Anyway, Cerise has had this dream seven nights in a row. It's like all those people that watch the 2017 Netflix movie A Christmas Prince every day. Kind of like that, but more depressing. Maybe more depressing? People did that? Oh yeah, Netflix called them out on Twitter, which seemed kind of mean, actually. Wow. So I I watched that this year. It's it's not very good, but the sequel is way worse. Uh, Yeah, actually, Hub on Tighten Up the Defense said exactly what you just did. Hub is a gentleman with excellent taste who understands a bad sequel when he sees one. Mm Mm-hmm. So Cerise wakes up screaming, and Excalibur runs in in their usual collection of skimpy PJs that we see them in in almost every fill-in issue, and asks asks what's up. She tells them and says, you know what? I think this is more than a dream. I have a weird psychic connection I'm feeling to something. Let's get suited up and get in our plane and track it down. She does not, however, suggest that they all roll up characters, which is what should really come next. Well, we'll get to more of that very soon. I keep on trying to think of ways to sort of six degrees of separation this because, you know, Claremont wrote Dragonlance comics. 
Wait, he did? Yeah. Oh shit, I have to read them. I guess you do. I, I love Dragonlance. Uh, well, some Dragonlance. Dragons of Summer Flame can suck a fuck. How exactly does one suck a fuck, Miles? This Donnie Darko reference brought to you by the fact that we watched that movie way too much in college. Yep. So Excalibur ends up at a creepy castle inhabited by a kindly old wizard named Gath. And, hey, wait a minute, the last time Excalibur went to a creepy old castle and found a kindly old wizard, it was Merlin in disguise, and the story was so iffy that Alan Davis, like, nuclear-level retconned it away. Also, the last time anyone ran into a wizard with a name even close to that, it was Kulan Goth, and he definitely made New York into a weird D&D place. Which I guess would fit here. It totally would, but this guy doesn't do that. He informs Excalibur that he's stuck here from another dimension, and he theorizes that Cerise's dreams might be because she's also from another dimension, and so somehow their energy connected, which, wait a minute, we're going to find out in, like, the next episode we do that Cerise is not from another dimension? Eh, whatever, doesn't matter. Does does this guy think that space is another dimension? Maybe. Maybe he thinks the next door is another dimension. Maybe he doesn't get out much. I mean, to be fair, an Excalibur's Britain next door could entirely reasonably be another dimension. Well, there you go then. But suddenly, before they can converse much more about what does or does not count as another dimension, a new guy shows up. That's right, it is the guy from the dream. It is a dark elf with very dark, almost black-purple skin, long flowing white hair, a green cloak, two swords, metal wings, Jack Kirby armor, and a Kirby dot emitting techno-magical monkey idol? Okay, basically, this guy is Dristo Erden, but with even more cool stuff. This guy is the most famous D&D character slash D&D novel protagonist ever, but like, you know, better. Also, this is the best part. His name is Chaos, but with a K. K-H-A-O-S. And for whatever reason, I found myself writing that in all caps every time I was taking notes on this because his name is Chaos. Yeah, no, that is that is the only correct way to write it. In fact, its spelling is in all caps. It's in comic dialogue, but still, it's, it's some names should just always be written in all caps, and this is one of them. So everybody fights because nobody talks in superhero comics to work things out. Chaos apparently thinks that Excalibur are henchmen of Gath, and Gath is like a bad dude according to Chaos. Gath says, no, it is Chaos who is the bad dude. So they fight, and Excalibur manages to win, but they don't entirely trust Gath either, so they, they take Chaos back home with them and stick him in their hospital jail. And when he wakes up, Cerise convinces him that they're not actually um, Gath's henchmen, and, and Chaos finally tells her what his, his deal is. And what his deal is as it turns out, is eight pages of recaps of writer Evan Skolnick's D&D campaign. For real. For real! That's the thing, like, if I was reading this without the context that Austin of Real Gentlemen of Leisure dug up, I would... I would still be highly entertained because it is clearly straight up in D&D campaign. Like they start out low level, the party comes together, they become mercenaries, they figure they figure out that there's this grand war that's happening in the world, they become more and more significant, it turns out Chaos is the prince of both the Light Elves and the Dark Elves and only he can stop it. It's glorious fantasy nonsense, utterly unrelated to anything that has ever happened in the Marvel Universe before or since. This dude just got his D&D campaign in a comic, which I gotta say, 
fucking props, Evan Skolnick. That's awesome. Yeah, he's he's talked about this in an in an interview, and we'll link to that in the visual companion. So so I'm just gonna read this this quote from Skolnick because it's pretty delightful. I'll freely admit that the cast character was an exercise in self-indulgence. Somewhere on a blog at some point, a comics fan very astutely identified him as a Mary Sue, a character that's an embarrassingly idealized stand-in for the writer himself as he inserts himself into an existing fictional universe. Chaos was indeed that because he was a close adaptation of the Dungeons and Dragons character I played during my high school and college years. What can I say? I was young. Evan Skolnick, we genuinely and earnestly salute you. I wish I could get my D&D campaign into a fucking X-Men comic. That would be amazing. Uh, yeah, this is just, this is delightful. I, I, if this were a major plot event or more than a story in an annual, I would be annoyed. But given the context, this is hilarious and delightful. Now, there's no point in describing Chaos's actual origin, because like we said, it's just unrelated to anything, and it's just straight up a D&D story. Also, you can just read the Forgotten Realms novels. It's basically the same, yeah. I would recommend starting with the Dark Elf trilogy, not the Icewind Dale trilogy. Technically, Icewind Dale was published first, but it takes place after. Excalibur's lucky he wasn't playing Ravenloft. Oh yeah, that would be way darker, it's true. Anyway, so we won't talk about the plot of the D&D thing much, but I will say that Chris Marin and Odwin Newman, I don't know who does what part of the issue, but their art is fucking rad, and I would love to see whichever of them does this flashback, or both if they share the duties, do a D&D fantasy comic. Like, it's really appropriate for the story that's being told here. I actually checked, and uh, Chris Marin has actually done a bunch of Marvel issues. Odwin Newman uh, hasn't. He designed a Sugarman action figure, and now he runs a company called New Art Rivals, which does custom drawings of sports mascots looking badass. So, huh, that's a very strange huh. CV. Do you think Chaos is friends with Gritty? Chaos is friends with Gritty. It's canon. They have adventures. It's awesome. They go to taverns and drink. You heard it here first, kids. Chaos and Gritty for life. And life is spelled L-Y-F-E and four is a number four. So anyway, Chaos got sent to the 616 by accident when he was chasing after the evil warlord Goth. Um, or Gath, sorry. The evil warlord Gath. I keep on wanting to call him Goth because I kept on thinking he was going to turn out to be cool on Goth. He's totally not. He's much less cool. Although he does have a really cool appearance in that awesome fantasy flashback. Yay, but he's not cool on Goth. He is Gath. Gath, Gath, Gath. I need to try to remember that. Well, you really don't, because he won't show up ever again. Anyway, Cerise decides that she is going to check out Chaos's claims and go visit Gath in his castle again. Gath, however, has reverted to his badass flashback appearance and knocks her out, at which point, back in Excalibur's very strange prison, medical chamber, whatever, Chaos simply uses his telekinetic powers, because, oh, he's got those two, apparently, by the way, to make his swords fly around and cut him out of the cage, and then he goes after Gath as well. Because he's worried about Cerise, but not like that, because he totally has a girlfriend, she just lives in Canada. <laughs> she totally lives in Fantasy Canada. Or Ravenloft or something. Ugh, I, I mean, there are cool people all over, but... Maybe she lives in Cren. Let's say Crin. I wouldn't recommend dating anyone from Ravenloft. It never goes well. Obviously didn't work out too well for Chaos. So Excalibur chases after you know, the the captured Cerise and the escaped Chaos. There's a big fight. Uh, Gath steals Chaos's monkey statue and uses it to teleport back to Earth, but with an I. This is I-R-T-H, which is the world where he comes from. The heroes follow and get to meet Chaos's D&D &D party, who are right there waiting. 
They're just hanging out right outside where the portal opens. And so now we have a grand conflict, a lengthy, bloody war where Excalibur and Chaos's D&D party team up to take down the warlord Gath, who apparently, due to weird time manipulation, got a big head start and took over the world while Chaos was still trying to catch up, even though they both just teleported there. And... It basically takes place over the course of a two-page spread. That's right, gentle listeners. We have eight full pages on Chaos's unrelated D&D origin story and a single two-page spread for arguably what should be the plot of the bulk of the issue. And I fucking love it. What, did you just want to watch Excalibur roll dice for eight pages? Uh, Seriously. I mean, I don't know. I guess you could make it interesting. The movie Hackers made hacking look interesting. I'm just imagining Captain Britain all, my intelligence is four, outrageous. <laughs> nice. So the good guys win, and Excalibur is teleported home by some elves because magic whatever. Uh, after, of course, Cerise gives Chaos a lip massage of apology. I love that she still calls it that. But when Excalibur teleports back, Chaos is pulled back too. He's stuck in the main Marvel universe to probably, I don't know, have a bunch of other adventures and like star in his own comic, which will be critically acclaimed and have spinoffs and eventually become a bigger hero and a bigger star than either Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man or Spider-Man in any incarnation. Wait, does that mean it's the Spelljammer campaign now? Uh, I mean, I I guess it technically is, but yeah, chaos just goes off. He refuses Excalibur's offer to have him join the team because of course he's the best at everything. So they would want him to join the team and says, no, he's got work to do and he has to be all alone and badass. And, um, that's, that's it for chaos. That's, that's it. We never see him again. Well, I, I guess this is how we live now. There is, however, a short backup story called Honey is Money, written by Joey Calavieri, penciled by David Baller, inked by Kevin Conrad, and colored by Glennis Oliver, and it's a TechNet story. Yay! There's not really much to it. There's a big gladiator dude who uh, kidnaps numbers of TechNet and says he'll kill him unless TechNet does what he wants them to do. And while TechNet, TechNet generally doesn't care that much about its, its members, it is almost tax season, so they decided it would be best to keep numbers alive and around. So TechNet goes to a big beehive world because apparently this barbarian's princess named Flavia wants the honeycomb nectar, and they fight some bees and body bags, slurps up all the honey, and they all get stung a whole bunch, but they get back, and uh, sure enough, the barbarian lets numbers go. And his girlfriend suddenly teleports in. Princess Flavia appears. And she is drawn, like, as ridiculously glamorous and sexy. Not quite as well as Alan Davis drew the Martian princess types in uh, the Crosstime Caper. But, you know, in that direction. She's a very fancy princess. She even has cherubs flying around her head. Now, it turns out that the honey was for the gladiator barbarian dude. Because she takes off his metal helmet and he's got really bad zits and the honey is a cure for them. Uh, So, hooray, it worked out. Although she won't take his chastity belt off until he loses weight. So, oh, that's uncomfortable. Um, But it's a fun little story. It's kind of pointless. It's just TechNet being TechNet and Gatecrasher being Gatecrasher. And I always enjoy TechNet. I realize opinions vary, but my opinion is correct, in my opinion. I know, I'm I'm totally with you. Uh, TechNet is delightful. So... We've gotten a whole bunch of new characters introduced. Did any of these guys actually stick around? Well, Charon didn't. He stayed both dead and damned, presumably with his also-damned parents. He and they never appeared again. Oh, well. 
The executioner, meanwhile, showed up a good half dozen more times, including longish stints in the Punisher and Gambit's respective ongoing series. He's a pretty rad character concept, so I feel great about that, actually. Now, a second Executioner did show up in X-Men Gold recently. He was way less interesting. He was just sort of like a mutant... Er, he was just sort of like an anti-mutant serial killer jerk with a much less cool costume. Meh. Chaos, though. Chaos never appeared again, which I think went, lends some weight to my theory that, that he ended up in a Spelljammer campaign. We also did have another new character, even if she wasn't credited with her own trading card, and that was Sienna Blaze. Sienna Blaze eventually died in Neverland after a lot of sporadic vi villainy and even a brief stint as a hero in the Ultraverse, which is basically the Malibu Comics universe post-Marvel acquisition of Malibu. She was briefly resurrected by Celine during Necrotia and is now presumably dead again. But yeah, she was I think she was probably the most prominent of this set. Despite the lack of trading cards, it's almost as if that's not the most important thing for a character's first appearance. No, no, I refuse to believe it. Trading cards and nothing else. I was gonna say, I remember Maverick. <laughs> Fucking Maverick. I love that guy. Even if his nose must always be squished by that mask, and so he must have a really nasal voice. Now, chaos may have disappeared into the ether, but you're still around, listeners, and you have questions. Cecilia asks via Tumblr, Sesame Street has always tried to deal with difficult topics. If the 616 version of Sesame Street did an episode about mutants, what famous X character do you think they'd ask to come on the show? And what Sesame Street character do you think they'd pair them with for the special? Oh man, this question was so delightful to consider. And my answer is definitely Beast. Beast is the X-Man with the most media presence. He's also the one who is a distinction-specific expert in his field, as well as a spokesperson for the mutant community. He's kid-friendly, he was an Avenger, and he would be great on Sesame Street. As for whom he'd be paired with, I thought about this, and I'm thinking it's going to have to be Grover, because they can bond over both superheroics and being blue fuzzy monsters. Ooh, good answer. Now, I went in a different direction with this question. I was thinking about the whole difficult topics thing, and so I was thinking... Kitty Pride could maybe, you know, explain some challenging parts of life to Big Bird, you know, helping him adapt to hard experiences like having a dad die when robots blew up the island he was on or getting kidnapped and brainwashed by an evil ninja or, you know, being stuck in a giant bullet for a really long time. Right, but this episode, I, Cecilia specified that this episode is specifically about mutants, and I think it's going to be really important then that the mutant who appears be a non-human passing mutant, because it's going to be, you know, the conversation about that is going to be about differences, it's going to be about differences in appearance, it's going to be about differences in ability, um, and, and again, I think, I think that's a role that, that Beast is just really singularly suited for. You do make a very good point. So yes, if it's an episode about mutants, Hank McCoy 100% of the way. I think Kitty's still a good choice, though. I mean, she's relatable but charismatic, she's been through some shit, and her empathy really shows through hard almost all the time. Maybe not so much in that current X-Men disassembled arc where she condemned a bunch of kids to die in another dimension. But, you know, aside from that. Stalwart1000 asks on Tumblr, Virtually every comics reader I know has uttered the phrase... I had stopped reading comics at that point, including some pros you've interviewed. I rarely hear that about other hobbies. What are your thoughts on this phenomenon, and what are your own histories with it? So, I stopped reading X-Men and comics in general twice. The first time was right after the Age of Apocalypse, until maybe 2000 or so. And the second time was somewhere around the end of the second Claremont run and when we started the podcast. I've caught up on a lot of the stuff that I missed, but not everything, actually. 
Now, for me, for the Age of Apocalypse one, the stories just felt kind of stale after Age of Apocalypse. Like, the writers were reusing ideas. You know, Havoc's a villain now. Great. Rogue is off on a road trip trying to find herself. Well, I guess she'd never done that before. But after Age of Apocalypse, everything just felt sort of, I don't know, uh, status quo, redone, business as usual. But at the same time, I don't think that was actually it. That's what I thought it was at the time. But really, the fact is, I was a teenager. I was distracted by video games and pending college and girls, and I wanted to feel mature. And comics weren't, you know, mature. And so I quit. Part of it, though, is just that long-running narratives like superhero comics, they're going to have their ups and downs. And if you read comics for a long time... You're going to see that cycle, and it's really easy to get jaded by the long series of returns to status quo or drops in quality or whatever, and I think I just needed a break from it. Comics are also a medium that you can pick up and put down um, and and you know come back and catch up with in ways that I think it's sometimes hard to do with other hobbies, especially now and especially with, with digital comics. I mean, services like Marvel Unlimited make it feel a lot lower stakes to stop picking up floppies right now because you're going to be able to read them all in in six months anyway i think cost is a huge part too for this um comics especially yeah following following comics in issue format is an incredibly expensive hobby these are not cheap and these are running at this point like four dollars each and there's there's a point where you can do the math and calculate whether your relative enjoyment is worth what you're paying for the issues. And if it's not, you know, put them down and use that money elsewhere. And and I think the fact that you can you can actually, you know, do that fairly ruthless math with comics makes it more likely that people will eventually or periodically choose to to put them down and, and sort of invest their resources somewhere else. Speaking of doing the ruthless math of measuring monetary contribution against enjoyment, we're a fully listener-supported podcast. Yay! Thanks! Wow, you made that sound really bleak. Oh, well, uh, anyway, um, thanks for helping us do the show. Uh, some levels of contribution from people who have done that ruthless math come with on-air acknowledgement from a variety of fictional characters and concepts, so I'm going to turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. Willow Rosenberg? Oh, yesterday's news. You'll have to step up your game if you want to compete with Jess and Rich, who are new and cool and will definitely catch on. Probably. I guess. Eh, whatever. Well, they do have trading cards. Do they, though? Do they? And and here now, I believe the mic is going to someone who does actually have a trading card, and that is the Executioner. So you wish to join the Executioner? You wish to execute murderous mutants to make the world a safer place and avenge Fred Duncan for whatever it is that happened to him? Then, let us arm ourselves with the most dangerous and terrifying artifacts the late Mr. Duncan was unfortunate enough to encounter from 1963 to 1970. Zach Tonak? Hoist the blade of the Conquistador. You can push a button and it splits into three blades and shoots lightning, I guess. It's pretty cool. Cameron Hubbards. To you, I give the Christmas spirit of Metoxo the Lava Man. It has the uncanny power to be a really deep cut from Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men episode 21. But if we are to work together, to execute together... 
Please call me Carl. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Excalibur heads to space... And loses half its lineup. (laughs) 